0: If you're with us this morning and you uh, don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now and they have a stack of Bibles. If you just get their attention by waving to them, they'll get one of those Bibles into your hands because we do want you to listen to what's being said today, but be able to follow along with your own eyes and so get their attention. First Corinthians chapter 15. I love the fact that in our culture and really worldwide, there is a day that is set aside for Christians really to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we know as we walk with the Lord, every single day is a resurrection day for us because of what he's done. And it's a part of our daily portion. But I do especially love this day and a chance to, you know, think about his resurrection and what it means for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I have preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the Twelve. And after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present. They were still alive. But some have fallen asleep, some have had died. And after that, he was seen by James and all the apostles. And then last of all, he was seen by me, Paul wrote also, As by one born out of due time, for I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. And therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach. And so you believed. That's the important thing. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, as we look at your word and this gospel that Paul describes here, that you've provided for mankind, we pray, Lord, that it would just be faithfully delivered to each person here today. And we pray that it would have the result that you want it to have in each human life, that each one would put their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sin and enter into life with you and everlasting life, we just take a moment to acknowledge your love for us, each one of us. You know, everywhere we've been, everything we've seen, everything we've heard, everything we've done. And Lord, we thank you for your attention to our lives and your desire, Lord, to save us and how you have in so many lives in this room, even this morning, been preparing them for this day. To hear from your word the reasons why they ought to put their faith in your heaven-sent Savior. And so we look to you for that work of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for your concern for each one of us on all levels. But we thank you, Lord, that you don't stumble when it comes to expressing your concern for each one of our souls Lord, speak to us now by your Holy Spirit, through your word, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In verses one through four of First Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul gives us what I think is probably the clearest description of the gospel. To be found in all of the Bible. The word gospel literally means good news. In fact, it's even stronger than that. It means great news. And this gospel that God has provided mankind with that we're going to be looking at this morning is a message of good news that comes from God himself to us. Good news that he knows Each of us needs to hear and understand and receive and make our own. What is that good news? He tells us in verses 3 and 4 that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. God's good news to each of us is made up of three great things, three great facts in human history. That Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day. I think that very often people tend to think that it's enough that Jesus died on the cross to provide us with the forgiveness of sins. That that's the single great focus in man's salvation. And that somehow this resurrection of Jesus from the dead is some kind of... Inferior add on that Jesus, that God did it just to demonstrate His power in some way. But here the Apostle Paul plainly declares that there is no gospel, there is no good news from heaven to man in this world apart from Jesus' resurrection. He declares that Jesus' death upon the cross for our sins and His burial as Wonderful as those two things are, they would be incomplete without his resurrection. It's interesting to realize that every time you read in the book of Acts concerning the early church, every time the gospel was preached, it was preached. uh, The message included the message of Jesus's resurrection. It speaks to us of how important. How highly they viewed the importance of the resurrection. It speaks to us of how important the resurrection was not only to them, but how important the resurrection was and is important to God this morning. And so this raises a question in my mind, and the question that it raises is, what is the significance of the resurrection of Jesus? Why is it so important to God? Why is it good news for me? Why should it be important to all of us? And if somebody doesn't explain that to me, I have no way of knowing. I can run into a hundred Christians. And they can talk to me about Jesus's death, his burial, his resurrection, speak to me about that as a historical fact. And to save my life, if God does not give me revelation and someone does not explain it to me, I will never figure out the importance of that resurrection on my own. That's the question that we want to answer this morning. Why wasn't it enough for Jesus to die on the cross for our sins? Why was it also necessary for him to be raised from the dead as well? And we want to look at that question and the importance of the resurrection, not supremely or purely as a, an academic exercise, but with the desire that it would produce within each of us this understanding, a deeper awe and appreciation for this great event this great miracle in human history that that it deserves because with greater understanding comes greater understanding of the resurrection comes a greater appreciation and that is really true of everything that's truly beautiful in life truly good in life the greater our understanding of it it automatically as a byproduct produces a greater appreciation in us for it I think about things in the physical realm related to this you think about the golden gate bridge it's a marvel most of us look at the golden gate bridge when we do and we think of it on a purely surface level we think of its beauty we think of this great harbor that it uh, that an inlet that it 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 crosses over the expanse we think Of the beauty of the views that are afforded us as we would walk across that bridge. And so most of us appreciate it on the level of the landmark that it is and its beauty. But if someone were to take us aside and explain to us the engineering behind the bridge. The engineering that was required to build something like that. The math behind it. The hard work behind it, the sacrifice, the risk, the danger that was involved in taking that off of a page somewhere in an engineer's office and actually having it go from one piece of land to the other, then our appreciation for that bridge would grow dramatically because with greater understanding, even in the physical realm, comes greater appreciation. I think of the Winter Olympics, just... Recently, in the last couple of months, they were celebrated. And you watch those athletes skiing every way you can ski. Skiing fast, skiing slow, skiing downhill, skiing cross-country, skating. And you just look at these athletes and you marvel at their Incredible skill as they're skiing and skating and doing all of these other sports. And then, but the network does something. They always do it, whatever network is is airing the games. They'll do a bio on the different athletes, and as a part of that bio or a bio on, on the sport, in order to increase our understanding of the kind of training that is behind the athlete and the skill that we're seeing, the kind of dedication that is required for them to be on the television set that we're watching. And as that understanding increases in our life, so does our appreciation for these athletes that we're witnessing. And it's not just on a physical level, but also on an artistic level. I think of the realm of music. I can sit down. In a room and I can listen to classical music and I can appreciate it on the level that I'm able to appreciate it. As the symphony rises and grows in its strength and it reaches its crescendo and then with just as great a drama, it falls down into quietness only to rise again. And I'm moved in my mind, I'm moved in my heart by what it is that that I'm listening to. But take that same music and let a concert pianist or harpist or a violinist listen to that music. And because of their understanding of the kind of genius that is behind the person that is able to first hear that music in their head and then to put it on the printed page. And they understanding the kind of skill and dedication that is required of someone playing the instrument to pull that kind of music off, to take it as notes on a page and make it something real that people like you and me can hear their appreciation is far greater than my appreciation because their understanding is greater. I think about it in the realm of art or in the realm of paintings. I think it's wonderful to go to any great museum and to view the great paintings of the old masters. Some of the new stuff I don't get that well. But the old masters... And the first trip or two to museum, I mean, oftentimes it's just this hurried kind of thing uh, through the place. And uh, typically all the paintings are to us is just this encapsulation of some kind of uh, pastoral scene or uh, just a bunch of colors and objects and people that are in the painting. And then one day you go to a museum with someone who knows art. Or you wait at the front desk for the next tour that's going to go by to show you all a a sampling of the great paintings within that museum. Or you rent one of those recorders to do a self-guided tour. And now all of a sudden, as you are going through being taught related to these paintings, we learn that they're not just colors on a canvas, but they're communication. That the encapsulation of a heart and a mind, somebody, some living something is behind that painting that is wanting to produce a certain something in every person that would ever see it. We begin to then be taught that according to different Ages of paintings that certain objects or certain uh, images that are in the paintings, they always represent this certain kind of thing. And as we begin to understand what they represent, we're on our way to understanding what's being communicated. As we learn a little bit about Rembrandt, we realize you never want to look at a Rembrandt without especially studying the faces Studying the expressions of the faces, studying his use of light. And as a result of this kind of understanding, we gain an appreciation for a painting that we wouldn't otherwise have. And what is true pertaining to physical things, to art, to music, is also true of spiritual things. And I love chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians because one of the ways that I think of it is an art gallery. All about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. To have the Apostle Paul as our tour guide. Or to take the little handset and tour guide, self-guided one, and, and to put it to our ear and, and, and rent that. Or to now listen to the Apostle Paul enlarge our understanding of the resurrection here again not supremely as an academic exercise as wonderful and necessary as that is but to increase our heart appreciation for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead so that it produces this great great awe within us notice number one and there'll be six paintings that we'll look at so to speak in the chapter verses three and four That Jesus' resurrection from the dead is important because it fulfilled many of the Old Testament prophecies that God had given concerning the coming of the promised Messiah. You notice a phrase is repeated once in verse 3, repeated again in verse 4. And it is the phrase, according to the scriptures. Jesus didn't just uh, die on the cross for our sins, period. He died on the cross for our sins according to the Scriptures. In fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. He wasn't raised again from the dead on the third day. He was raised again from the dead on the third day according to the Scriptures. The Old Testament Scriptures following the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, after that fall, God had promised to send a Messiah or a Savior who would come into the world who would undo all of that far-reaching damage that had been done by their sin. And God declared that the Savior that he would send into the world would not only be born into the world, but that he would be born into the world by a virgin. In Genesis chapter 3, God spoke to the serpent, to the devil, because you have done this in tempting Adam and Eve to sin. You are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. A woman doesn't have seed. She brings an egg to the reproductive process. It's talking about a virgin birth. And he shall, speaking of this child, this Messiah, the Savior that would be born of the virgin, God said to the devil, he shall bruise or crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Isaiah chapter 7 declared, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. The Old Testament scriptures went on to declare that this child that would be born into the world of a virgin would ultimately suffer at the hands of the very people that he had come to save, that he would be crucified and rejected, die at the hands of the very men and women that he came to save. Isaiah chapter 53 declared, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. And surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was on him, and by his stripes we are healed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and his sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison in judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living, speaking of his death, for the transgression of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. The Old Testament scriptures also declared, though, that this Messiah would not remain in this dead condition long enough for his body to begin to corrupt but that he would rise from the dead. David wrote by the Spirit of God in Isaiah chapter 16, verse 10, David wrote to the Lord and said, For you, speaking to God the Father, will not leave my soul in Sheol. And then of the Messiah he said, Nor will you allow your Holy One, the Messiah, to see corruption. He'll die, but he won't stay dead long enough for his body to start to rot. If Jesus had not been born into this world of a virgin, if He had not died a violent death and risen again on the third day, then we would not give Him any serious thought as the promised Savior of the world. But He did do all of those things, and because He did all of those things and more, our faith in Him as the promised Savior is based on the surest thing in this world, the Word of God itself. If you're new to the Bible and new to Jesus Christ and new to the God of the Bible, it is vital that you understand the prophetic element associated with Jesus' life that God gave Hundreds of prophecies concerning the coming Messiah in the Old Testament so that when the Messiah came and fulfilled those prophecies, we would recognize him for who he was as the promised Messiah of the Old Testament scriptures. And Jesus fulfilled those prophecies to a T. If I knew nothing of the Bible and someone came up to me and said to me, Jesus is the savior of the world and you need to make him your Lord and savior, too. I would think to myself, I wouldn't say it out loud. I'm a fairly polite person. I would think to myself, yeah, right. And precisely, why would I make him the savior of my life any more than the other six billion people on the planet right now? And the answer to that question is a simple one it's because of god's description prophetically of him in the old testament prophecies given so that you would recognize him for who he was and who he is when he came our faith in christ is not a blind faith it is a reasoned reasonable faith a faith Again, based upon the surest thing in this world. And if you haven't learned there's nothing sure in this world yet, you're young and inexperienced. Our faith is based upon the only sure thing in this world other than God himself. And that is his word. Second notice in verses 17 through 19. And let me read them with you. Paul said, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, then we are of all men the most pitiable. Paul tells us that without Jesus' resurrection, our faith as Christians would be futile. It'd be useless, good for nothing, empty. We'd still be in our sins. Now, you can hardly state the importance of... Of the resurrection more seriously than Paul does in those three verses. is a big deal that Jesus rose from the dead. Why would this be so? Why would our faith be futile without the resurrection? Because Jesus' resurrection from the dead was God Almighty's stamp of approval upon him upon His claims to be the Son of God, upon His claims to be the promised Messiah. It was heaven's stamp of approval upon all of His teaching and all of His miracles and upon Jesus' message that man is justified or saved by simple faith in Him. The Holy Spirit put it this way in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 4. It, that is righteousness by faith, shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses, and then here it is, and was raised because of our justification. During Jesus' public ministry, he declared that his life, he would give his life as the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of man's sins. He said that He came into the world to give His life a ransom for many. And then the hour of His crucifixion came. Jesus died to pay the price for the forgiveness of our sins. But how are we as simple human beings to know that His sacrifice was acceptable to God? That what He had said was true? The answer from heaven is The resurrection. The resurrection is the evidence that the father accepted the perfect sacrifice of his son for the forgiveness of our sins. I think that's wonderful. The resurrection of Christ is God's way of reminding us that our faith in Jesus Christ is well placed. Number three, notice That Jesus' resurrection provides us, mankind, with a needed victory over death. Verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead. And has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, that is by Adam, by man, Jesus, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die... Even so, in Christ, all shall be made alive. To follow any religion or any religious system or religious leader that has no answer, number one, for the existence of death. And number two, provides no victory over death, Paul says, would be a complete waste of time because the death Death is the enemy of every single one of us in this world. Why would I follow a God who has no answer for one of the greatest enemies of mankind? What That God wouldn't be worth following. Our life would be better spent, Paul said in verse 32, eating, drinking as much as we can, living totally for pleasure, if death is going to have the final say in each one of our lives. But thankfully, Jesus' resurrection has provided us with a victory over death. Never, ever, ever trust any so-called savior or God or guru or philosophy or person or place or thing concerning your eternity, who cannot also supply you with an explanation for the existence of death in the human condition. Have you ever wondered, why do people die Why do human beings die? Why do we die? Not just thinking about the fact that people do die, or even thinking about what happens after death, but why does death exist at all? These are the big questions of life. These are the questions that affect our eternities. And I don't think that there's any greater explanation to that question Then the explanation that God gives us in the first three chapters of his book, Genesis chapters one through three. And the Bible teaches that death reveals every single one of us in this world, in this room, in human history to be a descendant of that ancient fallen Adam. And I think someone can legitimately ask, how do I know? that the Bible's record of sin and the fall of man in the Garden of Eden is true. What proof can you give me that I am a descendant of that ancient Adam and Eve, as the Bible teaches? And the Bible's answer to those outstanding questions is found in verse 22 of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, death, the existence of of death, the fact of death reveals each and every one of us to be a descendant of Adam. God encapsulates it in four simple words in Adam, all die. Death reveals every one of us to be a descendant of Adam. Never, ever, ever, ever. Trust in any so-called savior or God or guru or philosophy or teacher or any person, place or thing with your eternity who cannot also supply not only the explanation for the existence of death, but also provide you with a victory over death. One day, the religious leaders of the Jews came to Jesus and they asked him for a sign. And Jesus understood exactly the reason they were asking for the sign. They were asking for a sign as an evidence, as a verification of his claims to be the Messiah and to be the Son of God. They had signs enough. They had three and a half years of signs The blind were seeing from one end of the nation of Israel to the other, from one side to the other. Blind people had been, had their sight restored to them. Lame people walking. Lepers had been cleansed. People had been raised from the dead. They had more than enough signs for a believing heart that testified to the truth of Jesus' claims concerning himself. But Jesus says something interesting. He yields to give them one more sign. One more sign. And Jesus declared to them, he said, it's a wicked and it's a wicked and perverse generation, adulterous generation that seeks after a sign and no sign will be given to it. But the sign of Jonah, the prophet, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of that great fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And what sign did he give them? The sign of his resurrection. The sign of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of that great fish, That he would be three days and three nights only in the heart of the earth, in that dead condition. But that on the third day, he would resurrect from the grave. And what was he communicating? Don't trust any Savior or salvation or Messiah that hasn't conquered death. I love God. I love his word. I know that not everybody... Is like me. Not nothing to talk about in that. To me, God is the only one that knows what He's talking about in this whole wide world. He's the only one that knows what He's talking about in this noggin of mine. I don't even need multiple personality to be confused. And I've talked with so many people through the years, and I've listened to so much stuff through the years. And I mean, there's just no shortage of people who can just go on and on and on and wax poetical and wax philosophical about anything and everything. And then they take on subjects like life and death and eternity and everlasting life. But if they have not conquered death, they are not to be trusted. This isn't a place for words and words alone or eloquence or vocabulary. People's eternities are at stake. Have you conquered death? Do you have an answer for death? Now you can talk to me with authority about salvation and my eternity and everlasting life, but not until then. And Jesus not only spoke authoritatively about life and death, but then he proceeded to demonstrate his authority over death through his resurrection. Notice fourth in verses twenty nine through thirty four, that the fact of Jesus's resurrection is important because it's a strong influence in our lives toward holy living and faithful living as a Christian. Notice in verse thirty two. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts, Paul said at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead don't rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. The knowledge that this same resurrected Jesus is one day going to return and rapture the church, at which time we're going to give an account for our faithfulness to our Christian life and to our Christian faith and the ministry that he has called us to has a purifying influence upon our lives. An influence For purity that God knows is needed because of the wickedness and the influence towards sin in this world. It provides this knowledge that I am one day going to stand before this resurrected Jesus and give an account not for my salvation as a Christian. But for my faithfulness to live the life that he called me to. It provides a very strong and a very needed motivation for staying faithful to that calling, his calling upon our lives, no matter how hard that might be. Paul talks about being fought with a beast at Ephesus. In Ephesus, it's not talking about literal beasts. He wasn't thrown in the Colosseum and had to fight off lions or something. He's talking about the Judaizers in Ephesus where they wanted to tear him we're talking about men we're talking about religious men who didn't want merely to kill him they wanted to tear him like an animal uh, in pieces pull him in parts And and, and, and tear him apart in killing him for the simple reason that he preached the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what was one of the things that Paul reveals to us here that kept him faithful to God's word, faithful to God's calling upon his life in the face of even death? It was the truth of the fact of resurrection, that there is a life after this one. And that we, the life that we now in, we will one day enjoy in eternity as Christians is affected by the quality of the life that we live now. And that realization that one day we are going to stand before the Lord Jesus and give an account, the resurrected Jesus, for our faithfulness, it has a purifying effect within our lives. And we need it. God knows we need it. I don't like this world. I mean, I like ice creams. And I like, i mean, there's things I like in this world. I don't like the worldly system. I don't like what I'm seeing. I don't like seeing I don't like seeing the devil's control of the world on, a, on an international level, on a national level. On top of an individual level, I don't like seeing how blatant and how open he is and how I don't care he is in what he's doing in this world and how he's tempting people and how he's destroying lives by the day. And I I was watching, went online, I never watched the news on television because it's such an inefficient use of time. You may have more time than I do. So I go online like most of you to get news. So I go to I go to Fox and then I go to I go to CNN as well. So you know that uh, I'm well balanced in my news. <laughs> but this week I went to Fox and I'm looking at the headlines and looking at what they're highlighting there at the moment. And I see this uh, a story had been done. You can click on the video and watch it. About an uproar over. Some video games in Japan. I hate video games. You can love them. I know it's a multi-billion dollar, bigger than movies in terms of what they make. But I don't like video games because I don't like to be in competition and have all these things happening inside of me where I don't get to run (laughs) at the same time. And let some of these chemicals begin to burn off a little bit. I don't know how you can do this for hours. So I thought, well, I'll see what young people are into and what the rage is on these things the story was about the new video games and apparently there are so many of them in Japan developed but the latest one has created an outrage and it's a video game in which you are allowed to molest and rape women you're in a Japanese subway station you pick the woman out you can fondle her You can take her clothes off. You can blow her dress up. Ultimately, as you progress in the game, you can rape her. And while you rape her, she screams in the video game while you do it. And I look at this world that I live in and I look at the nation that I live in and I see this direct proportion as they see a nation that is just slipping on every level deeper and deeper and deeper into sin by the day until even the most callous person looks and says, is there any way that this can ever be turned around? And it's one of the advantages and disadvantages of getting a little bit older. As you look at these things with alarm, you can't believe what you're say, seeing what you're hearing on a daily basis. How bad the culture is getting and how quickly people are losing hope of ever turning it around. And I know that people just brush the whole thing off and they think it's simplistic when people will say, yeah, you know, our our problems began to get worse and worse when we took Bible, the Bible out of the schools. Look at the evidence, though. And I'm not just talking about Bibles in school. I'm talking about a culture. That, in, 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 as, as a nation where they are taking away, you, you take away the, from one generation and another generation and another generation to a greater degree that there is a God who is raised from the dead. That you are either going to stand in front of one day as your savior or as your judge. And you remove that from the thinking and the decision making and the actions of people. And you're going to create a world that you don't want to live in. And that's the world we are creating. The consequences, the effect of unbelief concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just some day in the sweet by and by in eternity. We pay a price today in this country for neglecting the importance of that resurrection and what it is intended to supply us as fallen men and women in a very fallen Temptation-filled world. The resurrection is a needed influence. These people, they cannot know. They don't know what they are doing when they take God away from people. Fifth, the resurrection of Jesus is important because it is the guarantee of our own future resurrection into heaven. Verses 35-35 through 57 notice in verse 51 As I read it behold I tell you a mystery we shall not all sleep but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed speaking of the rapture for this corruptible must put on incorruption this mortal must put on immortality and so when this Corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying which is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's like Paul's doing a little dance in front of death. Doing a little dance of celebration, we wouldn't call it mocking, in front of Hades. The joy of being freed from death. The joy of being freed from hell because of Jesus' resurrection fills him with that kind of, of joy. Jesus' resurrection provides us with the guarantee as Christians that when we lay down our physical bodies individually at the time of the rapture, we will receive a new body prepared by God for eternity for heaven. The Bible teaches concerning heaven. We will in, in eternity we will never give the subject of death another another thought. We will never hear of it again. We will never witness it again. We will never fear it again. At the end of Jesus' thousand year reign Death and hell, the Bible teaches, will be cast into the lake of fire. Good riddance, I say. And then human history is going to give way to a new heavens and a new earth in which there is no longer any death. John wrote in the Revelation and he said, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death again in Revelation, chapter 21. And God will wipe away Every tear from their eyes, there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, and there shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Praise the Lord for that. There's a story of a father who was riding in a car with his son, young son. The window was parked down and a bee came into the car. And the boy is allergic to bees, and so he set him into a panic. And he just starts thrashing and trying to escape the bee. And the more he tries to escape the bee, the more he agitates the bee. And the bee comes toward him. Finally, the bee presses itself up against the windshield inside. And the father is able to get his hand up against that and grab a hold of the bee inside of his hand and hold it there for a moment or two. And then suddenly he releases the bee again into the room to a great a disturbance to his son who begins to thrash around in fear over the beer, over the bee being released again in, in, in the room. And after a moment or two, he opened up his hand and held up his hand to the son. And he said, look, son, the stinger is gone. He can't hurt you any longer. And that's what Christ has done for us. Just as the bee loses its stinger when it stings, so death lost its sting. When it stung Jesus, it cannot sting us again in the same way. And thus Paul declares, "O death, where is your sting? Oh hell, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> One day death is going to be done away with altogether, but in the meantime,. In the life of the Christian, the only power that it has is to slip us out of this body and into the body that's been created for us in heaven. And sixth and finally, in verse 58, the resurrection is important because it provides us with the confidence that our faithful service to the Lord, this side of heaven, will one day be rewarded. Therefore, my beloved brethren, he writes, be steadfast, immovable, abounding always in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. The resurrection of Jesus Christ fills us with a satisfaction and a joy that what we are doing in this life makes a difference for eternity that it will not only be rewarded one day but this serving of the Lord is its own reward now because of the resurrection of Jesus he has made it possible for us to live a life that has eternal meaning and purpose as we live our lives in obedience to God as we serve God as we are an influence for God In this world, our lives take on a meaning and a purpose they would never otherwise have. A meaning and a purpose that some of us can't live without for any length of time. When I became a Christian, settled the issue of Jesus's lordship in my life at the age of 25. It wasn't hell that drove me to Christ. Christ. I had no fear of hell at that time. I should have had it, but I didn't have it. Hell was the last thing on my mind. Do you know why I came to Christ? I came to Christ because life was so empty and purposeless in what I was living apart from God. I couldn't stand it. God never made me, and it's true of all of us, though. Some of us just catch on to it a little quicker than others. But God never made me to be able to live in this life without having true meaning and true purpose and true influence for something eternal. And apart from that, life has no Great reason for living the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes Solomon said apart from a relationship with God all of this is vanity vanity and vexation of spirit it's emptiness and it's frustration and to me. That was what where my life was. No two words could greater. Here I am, 25 years old. I've experienced what it is that I've experienced. The world would look and say, it's all out in front of you. And I looked and I said, I think I've tried most everything at this point. And if this hasn't satisfied me, then upgrading in these areas or doing more of this isn't going to do it. Life could not have been more empty and frustrating And the resurrection of Jesus Christ and putting our faith in him, living for him, knowing that one day he's going to reward our faithfulness. It gives us a meaning and a purpose in life that we would never otherwise have. Sometimes I see people that are before they come become a Christian and it might be you this morning. And they're going from this thing to this thing to this thing. They're in this hobby and then they're in this business venture and then they're in this interest. And then they're reading this book and then now they're dabbling over in this thing. And then they're trying this thing and this thing over here and this. You meet them the next time and now they're into this thing. And you can look at them and say, is this like the flakiest person in the whole world? I never view them that way. This is a man or a woman that is on a search, whether they realize it or not, they're on a search. And they're looking for that final thing, that something that brings meaning and purpose to their life, that silences that big, what is the meaning and purpose of life question in their life. And they're looking and they're looking. And I look at that kind of person and I say, they're going to end up getting saved someday. Because they're on the search and they are obviously not going to stop until they come to the end of their search. And the end of the search is faith in Christ. So you witness to them and let them know the truth. This is what you're looking for. This is where you're headed. I can save you hundreds and thousands of dollars that you're going to spend on who knows what next. You're looking for Christ and you're looking for the meaning of life that comes out of his death, burial and resurrection. Well, that ends our Paul's tour of the importance of the Holy Spirit from First Corinthians 15 I mean it's not exhaustive by any means but these are just some of the blessings of Jesus' resurrection the blessings that become ours as we put our faith in him as our Savior and our Lord this morning I say praise the Lord for our resurrected Jesus take these things out of a human life and what do you have Some of you sit in the room here and you say, well, even if you brought friends, you say, aren't you supposed to do something nice and light and fluffy in 15 minutes? Don't you know this is the biggest Sunday, people coming in and that kind of stuff, and you head into a sermon like that? I cannot appreciate what I don't understand. Help me understand it. And then leave the appreciating of it to me and God. We'll do just fine there. And that's the heart behind the message this morning. So that you understand what God has done for you. And what He has given you in the resurrection of His Son. And praise the Lord this morning. That not only is He risen. But in His grace. He is willing to come in to human lives like yours and mine. I think it's important for us to give some thought to death before it occurs. You look at the culture that we live in and how much emphasis and how much attention individual human lives will give to making money and accumulating wealth and then having accumulated it to set in order all of the things that, in the event of death that it will be distributed to the proper people that a person wants it distributed to, all the planning that goes into a lifetime of vacations and some hobbies and all of the thinking that goes on and on and on in our culture, but preparing for everything except death and the life to come. And Christ calls on us to think about death. It's too late to prepare for it once it comes. It needs to be prepared for ahead of time. And there's only one true preparation for death, and that is faith in Christ. Because he's the only one who has openly conquered death on our behalf. Let's stand together and we'll pray.